Uh, we thought that the, we started brainstorming ideas as to how we could make a lot of money. We saw the World Wide Web is growing up. And wouldn't it be a shame if the, if the World Wide Web developed and was a stupid web? And that people would just say, I don't know, this looks like some kind of space donut, you know? And we didn't want the web to be stupid. So we decided we wanted the web to be smart. We want, when there's a good picture coming out, we want an explanation of it by professional astronomers. And that's one thing that we happen to be. So you can just picture the wall covered with CCDs. And those CCDs record when they've received, received light from a light bulb. And you, you time it. And then you say, okay, CCD nearest the light bulb, when did you see light? CCD far away from the light bulb, when did you see light? Okay, the illumination front went from one to the other. How fast did it go? Faster than light. Robert Nemiroff is our guest today, and he is a professor of physics at Michigan Tech University. And he's the author of an upcoming book called Faster Than Light, Wow, why your shadows can, but you can't. All about superluminal phenomena that doesn't break the laws of relativity. But he's also a co-founder of something you may have heard of, the astronomy picture of the day, APOD. And so he joins us to give us all kinds of great insights into what it's like to get an APOD published. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hey, Robert Emmeroff, welcome to our podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, no, I'm serious. I've started it. That's why I'm going to, that's how I've just welcomed you. <laughs> hey, Robert Emmeroff is with us today. We're, I can't believe it. This is cool. Welcome uh, to our podcast, man. Robert, yeah. you uh, are uh, sort of a legend around the circles that we hang out in. And uh, we want, and we're so grateful that you took some time out to join us and talk about just all kinds of stuff. Um, so happy to be here. Well, and, and it's like I said, I'm, Thanks just, so much I'm all, I've I got the vapors to, to half the hype here. <laughs> yeah. My family doesn't greet me like that. So it's a little bit unusual. Yeah. <laughs> Your family doesn't do that every time you walk in the door. This is, this is Tony and full fanboy. That's right. Yes. Forgive me. I've, I've got the vapors. Okay. Um, all right, so but, so there's so much to talk about, but you uh, have written. Let's uh, we, we, we want to start with your book uh, that you that you're uh, getting ready to publish. It's not out yet. It will be out soon. It's called Faster Than Light: uh, Why Your Shadows Can Do It, But You Can't. Uh, it's, it sounds like a book on relativity a little bit, but also about some counterintuitive parts of the speed of light. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your book is and why you wrote it? Yeah, so it's still in progress. Um, it's a long story. It occupies a lot of my time, uh, but uh, it's really cool. It's, um, it's a lot of fun to write because I'm a physics professor and I've been interested in this stuff and in astronomy stuff since I was uh, this big. So your, um, your audio, too. audience is this big. Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, so there's a lot of, um, cool things. I've always been interested in, in, 
you know, time and space as many people are. And that's why I became a physics professor, uh, much to the chagrin of my parents who thought I would be an engineer and make real money. So uh, it took oh, Was that right? They, did, they thought it was a step down to be a physics uh, professor? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, <laughs> I was going to be at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, I uh, was going to be a physics major and uh, they had something called engineering physics. So they had been pressuring me. They thought that I would get over this phase of just being into physics and astronomy. And eventually do what most people who are interested in this do, which is become an engineer, which is fine. Engineering is good, but I was just more interested in the fundamental questions and the cool stuff. I couldn't get over the cool stuff. Um, and so eventually I broke them. And uh, uh-huh. eventually they, they, they're so somewhat proud of me. So my dad, though, my dad's a journalist. So, um, so he did not really consider much of what I write to be real journalism. <laughs> but uh, he was good. He, he had a lot of good advice, though, I have to say. So anyway, um, so I've been interested in, in special relativity, and uh, I just stumbled across this idea that was the basis for a lot of my current research and this book, just trying to understand stuff. So it turns out that I and many people go through life with stuff they don't understand. But it's okay, because I don't understand most stuff. So there's stuff over here I don't understand, but it's mostly consistent. And then as your audio listeners can see, there's stuff over here that I don't understand, and that's pretty much consistent. But those two things, they, they're not consistent. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. So I happened to have some free time. I was trying to iron something out, and I came across an unusual realization that I couldn't find anywhere that had to do with special relativity and, and speed of light. So it, it can be summarized in a couple quick questions. So uh, first I'll do a couple preliminary questions. If you have a laser pointer, so um, picture I'm holding a laser pointer, and um, actually I have one, looks like a mouse. See, if you look into your your audio, then you can see the mouse here. And um, then you take this uh, laser pointer and you move it across the wall, and there's a little spot on the wall. Mine's red. See? So so how fast, is there a limit to how fast you can drag that spot across the wall? And many people would say, well, it's the speed of light, right? Uh, But it turns out that that's not actually true. You can drag that spot across that wall faster than light. But that doesn't mean that there's any photons moving faster than light. It's just the superposition of different photons hitting the wall. So also that works with shadows. If you have like a flashlight, and you put your hand in front of a flashlight and you have a wall way back there and you move your hand, you can see the the shadow of your hand on the wall. Now picture that wall is 10 times further away and you do the same thing. And the shadow of your hand moves faster, is it 10 times faster? Okay, well then let's move the wall way, way back there. Is there a limit to how fast you can make your shadow move? So I, it's not controversial, actually, that there is no limit on that. It might take a long time for the photons to hit the wall, but the superposition of where your shadow is moving on the wall, the further back you make that wall, the faster that shadow moves. Okay, hang on. So we're not talking about the speed of the photons in the laser pointer or in what's making the shadow. We're talking about the motion of the laser spot Yes. on the wall, and yes. the motion of the shadow against the yes. wall from which 
the photons are made, right? Yeah. Robert moves his hand a lot faster than we do, Tony. First off. (laughs) And no physics laws are being violated here. So So what you can do, though, you can do it yourself, but you can't see the result. You can take your laser and you could move it across the moon at just regular speed. And that laser spot is going to be wide, maybe wider than the moon. On that moon, which is our only moon, as far as I can tell. And the only uh, one I know of. So it's the superposition of the photons going through yeah. the laser beam, hitting the moon, reflecting back, and the motion of that dot. All of those added together would equal something greater than the speed of light? Yes, yes. Okay. It, it can move I... that fast. There are other awesome. ways of having the illusion of the speed of light. There's what's called the Christmas lights illusion, where when you, you ever stare at Christmas lights for hours on end, like who doesn't? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm embarrassed to say how long I spent doing it. And so soon you notice some patterns on the lights, right? It seems like some of the lights blink at around the same time. And then if you keep watching, it seems like the light jumps from one to another one. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's actually no limit to the seeming speed that light can jump from one to another. But really nothing's moving between between the lights. Well, Well, except that I found a correlation between that motion and how much scotch I've drank. Right. Yeah. So that, they're, that's they're, another correlation, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I find <laughs> I find that that's correlated but not caused by <laughs> that. But you know. So um, so what <laughs> other than scotch, what causes this? I don't you know, I understand. So if you're if you're this far away from the moon and you're just whipping a laser across the moon, it's traveling that distance, you know, where you're at least where you're pointing the laser is traveling that distance, you know, instantly, whereas the light itself would not be quite as fast. Yeah, it takes light about what, a second or so to get to the moon, right? But the but the the laser spot will move across the moon one even though the photons that hit the left part of the moon and the photons hit the right part of the moon, it took a second to get from the laser pointer to there. They, to get across the moon can take much less than a second. And you can if you could see faint enough you could see that. So it turns out that's even cooler. It turns out there's a superluminal world that surrounds us. If you go into a dark room and there's a light bulb, sure, there's a picture, there's a light bulb in that room, and you turn on the light bulb. So originally the room is dark, but then once a couple seconds go by, clearly the room is illuminated, right? So therefore the walls of that room, normal walls, went from unilluminated dark to illuminated bright. So the first thing that happens is the the spot nearest the light bulb on the wall, that's illuminated. And then you get this circular thing that goes out from there. And within uh, a couple of nanoseconds for most rooms, the whole room becomes illuminated. That illumination front between dark and light moves faster than light. Mm, So when you turn on a room, if you could see down to the nanosecond scale, it, which you can't see that fast. You see it about a tenth of a second. You see a movie in your life that takes about a tenth of a second between frames. But if you could somehow speed that up to the nanosecond scale, you could you would notice that there are illumination fronts moving across walls faster than light. But that doesn't mean that photons are moving faster than light. It's the same type of illusion as you get with your laser pointer. You're calling and it an illusion. So the illusion, it's an illusion of of faster than light. It's an illusion of faster than light, but those illuminations, it's an illusion, but the the, the, the 
the shadows and illumination and fronts do move faster than light. You could clock that. And so what causes that? Like, what's responsible? It's light going across the wall. It's just the way it is. You can, you can map out the geometry. If light moves from the light bulb to this part of the wall at this speed, and light moves to the, from the light bulb to another part of the wall at that, that, another speed, then the, um, the, the illumination front has to go faster than light in order to go from one to the other. You so the illumination that. front that you're talking about, that's super luminous, dark and light, is independent of the motion of the photons as they leave the light bulb, reflect off that surface, and come to your eye. That's yeah, so not the same. So, that's not the same thing. So it's not what the eye sees. Actually, the eye sees can see something. Well, you said different. illumination, and that's as right. perceived by my it's eyeball. Something can become illuminated. Your CCD can detect light. But you don't necessarily have to see it. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's true. So you can just picture okay. the wall covered with CCDs. And those CCDs record when they've received, received light from the light bulb. And you, you time it. Okay. And then you say, okay, right. CCD nearest the light bulb, when did you see light? CCD far away from the light bulb, when did you see light? Okay, the illumination front went from one to the other. How fast did it go? Faster than light. Oh, I get that. Now, that is a good thought experiment. Okay, so that helps me visualize exactly what's going on. So I can picture that. So the pixel at time T1 and the pixel at time T2 across the room, that difference would indicate a velocity faster than light. Yes. When, okay. You can't communicate faster than light. So Einstein Still depends on photons. His arms and say, you didn't get anything. You flunk. Einstein did not say you flunk. He'd say, oh, yeah, so what? That's true, but so what? Okay. But it turns out there are some cool so what's in there. So it, it's even better. Let's say you had two lights. Those two lights are going to interfere a little bit. And there's mm -hmm. going to be, you can't see it because your eye integrates over a tenth of a second. So there mm -hmm. are dark and light lines moving around as the light bulbs go in and out of interference. And those, those lines, so if you could see at the nanosecond scale, your room would be covered with dark and light lines moving around. And those lines would typically move faster than light. And your book is, is full of examples of this. You've got many chapters. Uh, yes. I don't know if you want me to mention any of them, but they, 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 there are many chapters on different examples, superluminal galaxies, spaceships, um, and th you know, all of these places where we can find superluminance, I guess is the term. Um, and so uh, how did you come about all of these different <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Superluminal aquatics. I mean, <laughs> what, what, what? How does your brain work that you're able to come up with all these different examples of superluminal? Well, it wasn't hard. It's just like when you start looking for something, you suddenly find it. Like a lot of places. Let's sure, say you confirmation bias. Blue eyes, right? You thought yeah. everybody had brown eyes. I have brown eyes. I don't know. So then you start notice. Hey, my friend, you got blue eyes. And so you say, and your friend tells you, well, lots of people have blue eyes. Then you walk, start walking around and say, wait. You have blue eyes, and you have blue eyes, and you suddenly notice it everywhere. So it's a little bit like that with this. It turns out that it was much more common, but that humans don't usually notice it because it happens so fast that our eyes can't see it. But with modern technology, I think it's soon going to become visible, more visible. You can now find an occasional video on YouTube that, that highlights it. Um, so another thing is there's other aspects of physics where faster-than-light phenomena come in. And one is, in general relativity, that the distant galaxies are actually moving away from us faster than light. So there's a couple chapters in the book that, that deal with that. And uh, Well, I think we, let's just drill down on that just a little bit because I have a personal story about this. I first okay. started 
my uh, video making career, one of the first things I did was I made a video on the Hubble Deep Field. And in that video, in the script of that video, which I made in 2006, uh, was had the statement in it. Because once the the uh, you see the pictures of all of these galaxies in the Hubble Deep Field, the furthest we'd ever seen at that time, and they had they had uh, redshifts in some cases. I said faster than the speed of light. Well, when I said that, I immediately got a lot of negative comments and and throwback on this whole thing. And you make this point in your preface, which I have read, where you said that. It, the, you've actually been in an experience where people, once they found out you're talking about things going faster than light, they won't even listen to you. But, or at least yeah. they've asked you to stop. I think was the was the way you put it in your in your preface. Uh, th- there's a strong sense that nothing can go faster than light, and yet the expansion of the universe, the this cr- this expansion of space time, is not covered by the speed limit of general relativity yes so it's it's somewhat common so i have to correct you a bit so when you see a galaxy out at high redshift in the hubble deep field you're seeing it before it was going faster than light so if something is emits light and it's moving away from you faster than light you're not going to see that light so Mm -hmm. when you see the the galaxies in the hubble deep field you're not seeing them as when they're moving away from you faster than light. So redshift, when you get to infinite redshift, you're just seeing things moving away from you faster and faster. You can't see past infinite redshift. But if you ask, where are those galaxies right now? And if you were to take out your trusty laser pointer, which you just used to illuminate the moon and the wall, and point it toward those galaxies and ask the question, would the light from your laser pointer ever reach the, the faintest galaxies, the deepest galaxies in the Hubble deep field? And the answer is no. Because Your it is light not, will never reach that. Because the yeah. universal expansion isn't bound, right, by the speed of light limit. Is that correct? Is that yeah. a correct statement? Right. Yes, that is so, a correct statement. Yeah. So, okay. So, so oh, it is actually moving through space faster than the speed of light. It's not just our perception. Because when you were saying illusion, I thought, okay, so it's just our perception that's actually moving this speed. It's not things aren't moving through space at this speed. But what you're saying now is that these galaxies actually are moving through space faster than the speed of light. Yeah, you have to be careful in general relativity because there's more than one way to get a redshift. One is effective motion. Another is gravitational. So uh, things you're seeing in the deep universe are coming out of essentially a gravitational well to get to us. So there is a gravitational redshift component to them. And things get somewhat a little messy in the math of general relativity when you start including all of these. So when you see a redshift, you cannot just attribute it to speed. But it does have a speed component. And there are things like the microwave background, the, one of the big worries about it is it was always at the same temperature. So it must have been in thermal contact way, way back. And then the universe un- probably underwent a exponential expansion called inflation, and then it went out of contact, and now it's coming back in, which is why when we look at in the microwaves in, to one side of the sky and to the other side of the sky, they're roughly the same temperatures. So that's related to that. But I wanted to get a little bit into a, another little quiz that got me really into this, is that okay. so these are two, things, two, two quiz questions that are a little bit hard. I don't expect you to get them right. Um, but I, I didn't oh get them. Oh, my God. Right. I, mean, I doubt that. I didn't get them right. But I, this is what fascinated me, what got me into this field. So let's say you have an infinite planar wall. 
So I live in a world where there's this like perfect spheres and infinite planar walls. So that's not unusual for me. And let's say you have your trust relationship, but it seems to follow me around everywhere. Okay. So you don't, you take this laser pointer and you don't point it at your infinite wall. Okay. You point it slightly away from your infinite wall. Okay. So then you turn slowly, you turn your laser pointer toward the wall. And eventually the laser pointer points at the wall. Right. So where is the first point on that wall where there is a laser spot? Is it infinitely far down the wall? Is it um, right near you, very close to you? Or is it somewhere in between? I'm going to say infinitely far away. Okay. So that was my first guess, too. And that was the, the start of the revelation that this is strange. It takes photons an infinite amount of time to go infinitely far away. Well, that's true. Yeah. So it can't be infinite far away. That's true. And you know it's <laughs> okay. not the closest point to you, right? Because you, you can see that it's, it's just to the left or the side of that before it's at the closest point. So it's somewhere in between. It's not infinitely far. It's not the closest. When you sweep your laser pointer onto the infinite wall, it's somewhere in between. And I just thought that well, was How really do you say cool. somewhere in between infinity and close by you? I mean, I don't, I don't even know how you even... You can, given the angular speed of the, the, um, the laser pointer, you can actually calculate exactly where it is. But I'm leading up to something that might okay. even be cooler. Okay? Okay. Which way does the spot on the wall move? Let's say you keep moving the laser pointer. Does that spot move along the wall toward you? Or does that spot move along the wall away from you? Well, intuitively... In my mind, I'm thinking it's moving towards me, but I have a feeling that's the wrong answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so if, if, that was only, if that was always and only true, then how could there, what about the spot that is eventually going to reach the wall way, way down the wall, you know, very far away? Well, wait a minute. I'm turning a direction, right? I'm turning a direction towards the wall. Right. So, and then at some point in between infinity and close by, a really strange region uh, that could be really big. And I keep moving. It appears. And I keep yeah. moving and I keep moving. Well, that dot, I assume, would move towards me but as I'm moving towards true. the wall. It does, but there's more to the, there's more, another thing that happens. There's another dot that moves out to infinity because you event, you pointed the laser pointer toward infinity before you pointed at that spot. So what really happens is that there is a, pair, a spot pair creation event, half, not halfway, on the wall. One of those spots moves toward you, and one of those spots moves away from you. So another spot... Oh, wait a minute. So when you, when you move your laser pointer onto the wall, there's actually two spots that are created at first. And then one moves toward you, and one moves away from you. And we've shown it mathematically. And both those spots are born moving faster than light, and it does not allow you to communicate faster than light. <laughs> Blowing my mind, I tried to understand that, how you can get, you never heard of two spots on a wall. It sounds no. crazy, but it's the no. only way it can be. It's hard to even follow. And that's, that's what I'm saying, Tony. Like when me and Tony shine our laser pointer at the wall and we don't see it, we're just like, damn, we need some double A's. <laughs> right. you know? But when you do it, Robert's like, I'm going to write a groundbreaking book now. <laughs> well, we the scientific papers first so the book, yeah, uh, books coming That's, coming later yeah. So, yeah. but there's wow. other things besides cosmology there's uh in quantum mechanics there's um there's uh ways that you have you create pairs of particles that seem to 
they, they're not, they don't send signals back and forth. But when you measure one, let's say spin up, the other one seems to know about that to be spin down. Yeah, and that's entanglement, that right? to happen without speed limit, although it cannot be used for signaling. So there's all these other things in physics that seem to happen faster than light. So in the book, I try to go through them all and try to explain them on, as simply as I possibly can, one after the next. All Are you talking about entanglement things. with your example? I'm sorry? Were you just talking about entanglement right there? With, uh, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. So, th yeah. That's, that's a concept that, that I think it, it, it blows just about everybody's mind. The only thing I want to know about entanglement is when you say that one particle, uh, when they, once they've interacted, uh, and then, then they go their separate ways, they are forever entangled with each other. Uh, they, they know something about each other. That doesn't make sense to me in any situation other than like a one, like you just used the spin direction, right? Mm -hmm. If it's, if you have one thing to know about another particle, then when an entangled particle will know about that one thing, but how can entire systems be entangled? I, I understand that one particle with spin up somehow knows that the other particle knows it needs to be spin down because it's interacted with this other particle, but it only has to worry about spin in that case yeah. or anything more than that. Is all of that information carried with an entangled particle? Spin direction, charge, all of that? Um, well, I think the answer is that everything is entangled all the time so much that it seems like it's not entangled. So if you could just hear a little voice, if Horton could hear a who, then yeah. that would be one thing. But it turns out that there's um, on Horton's world, there's all these other people yelling, and you can't. it's difficult to make it out. So when something interacts with the real world, Every time it interacts with something, it creates an entanglement, but eventually becomes just a cacophony of can't tell anymore. And that's I our see. classical world. Our classical okay. world is this big cacophony of all these things, and it just acts classically. And while it's true that things are entangled and with each other, you just said for you cannot use that for any kind of communication, right? Yes, you cannot. So nothing there's basically in the book, no practical nothing, uses. Yes, nothing in the book, nothing... Yeah, in quantum mechanics allows you to communicate faster than light. You cannot signal people. But there are still things and correlations that happen. And I try to go through them in the book. And uh, so one thing I do want to add also, I almost forgot, is that the book is reaching a stage where I wouldn't mind having some people do what's called being what's called beta readers. So when the software comes out, there's um, uh, beta testers who test out software and there's still some bugs in the software and your computer crashes and the screen is blue for a while and then they apologize. So this book, so your mind might go blue, uh, unfortunately, which is, could be a problem. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm interested in people to read through it and say, you know what, this chapter I got lost and this other chapter doesn't make sense, but this chapter was good. So if okay. your listeners wouldn't mind, they can contact you or they could probably find me because my, my email address is all over the web uh, and send me and say, you know what, I, maybe I'll take the first three because I can't have too many because I've limited number of hours in the day. And I'll take a few of your listeners and ask them to be beta readers. And what they get out of this is my thanks and a copy of the book when it appears. It's not oh, a that's awesome. So you're it's looking space. for three people. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right. one. I want okay. to I found one. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so, so if we post that on the, the website, I think you're going to get a lot more than three, uh, yeah, three I, requests. Yeah, agree. agree. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but let me just give the email, spacejunk at deepastronomy.com, and I'll re I'll get that email and, uh, and uh, forward it to Robert if you don't find his email.
uh, directly. I know we got to talk about APOB, and I'm definitely, yes. but before we leave your book, mm -hmm. uh, I just want to ask you one question. You made a really good point about the pushback on some of, from, from some of the scientists. And when you said also in your preface that you had the privilege of helping PhD students get ideas for their theses and, and what they're going to uh, present uh, for a doctorate. And uh, some of the things that maybe you get pushback on is that if it involves any of the superluminal ideas. And my question has to do, in the, and this kind of leads into, I also, when you talked about your father being a journalist and that he kind of, you know, had issues with some of the way that, you know, maybe you wrote about science. Um, what do you find about the state now of writing in science do you, and, and there, and your, some of your colleagues feedback on it. I'm very interested in this idea that you got stopped in one, in some of your lectures with the minute you were that you, you started talking about this. What, what do you think that comes from? Why are we so embedded in these ideas of, you know, nothing can go faster than light. And that's true for anything with mass. But, but you know, why do you think that that's there? I'm, I'm looking to get your thoughts on the state of science communication and um, what your colleagues feel about some of these ideas that you're, that you're publishing. Well, I think the state of science communication is, is very good, actually. There's uh, lots of uh, um, opportunities to learn uh, that, uh, that people have that I have that I I follow different blogs and um, and um, YouTube channels and uh, you know I, I still read books uh, popular science books so I think there's more out there now than ever and uh, you know Google's great and people make fun of Wikipedia but in terms of uh, math and science it's actually pretty strong so uh, when I was little I didn't have uh, you know these kinds of uh, amazing outlets. And uh, it's not always in the traditional way of writing a book. I mean, people are, you know, they have blogs and there's some really good blogs out there that, uh, that aren't books by themselves, but they explain a lot of good points. There is Quora has questions too. And there's uh, OpenStax. It's just amazing uh, what um, a Stack Exchange, sorry, what's out there. So I think the state of science uh, is good, helped by, you know, podcasts by yours too. There's these, these great podcasts out there. So um, it's not as traditional as it was, but it's, it's tremendously broad. And it's people who want to learn about science now have a greater opportunity than they ever have. My problem with um, explaining special relativity and that some things that don't, don't have mass and don't send signals can move faster than light, I think that's just um, that people have been taught something and when they don't understand something, they just assume as I do, that whoever said the thing that they don't understand must be wrong. And so it's just a misunderstanding. I think if people were to go through that specific point, uh, most of the people, some of the people who I've dealt with, I was able to convince them that, you know, you can't communicate this way, but there are things around you that do move faster than light, appear to move faster than light, and oh, okay. do move faster than light. You just, so uh, I think it's some complex points sometimes in there. But uh, you know, these some some of the people who disagreed with me are professional physicists. They're just so used to that. They're used to that's dealing right. with, that's... with matter, and matter never has never been recorded as moving faster than light. And I don't think it can. Um, although Einstein's special relativity says you cannot accelerate from below the speed of light to above, or the mass term and the energy term blows up. Uh, right. It doesn't specifically say no superluminal, 
but I don't, I don't think matter can move faster than light. Well, I guess, so, so your, Dustin and I talk about this a lot within our hobby. We have a lot of uh, what I call harumphers. These are these are people who've been in the hobby for a long time. There's one way you do things, and only one way you do things. Right. And so they're they're busy harumphing their way through uh, an astronomy club meeting or whatever it is. And I guess I'm I I wonder about you certainly have harumphers in physics. And so what do you think of the statement that was made? I guess it was in the early 20th century about you know, science makes progress after all the old people, the old establishment, you know, move on and the new ideas can take, can take uh, hold. Do you think there's any truth in that? Um, and yeah. do you think it's worse now than ever? I kind of wonder if it's worse now. Um, I'd say, um, there is truth in that, that some people, Einstein himself, people didn't believe, you know, special relativity uh, until then, then the, the new generation was brought up learning what was what it was and just all the experiments agreed with it so that's the way it was so there are many people who went to their graves not believing it i do think it's prevalent today there's a but i don't think it's as bad as it used to be because there's some some experiments are just done so well and they're confirmed with um with other experiments and that eventually people believe it so i'm involved in gamma ray burst research and the community was split between do gamma ray bursts, these huge flashes of gamma radiation, do they occur in our galaxy mostly, or do they occur mostly far away? And the community was split. But people did not go to their graves disagreeing over that because you know measurement came to the rescue. Uh, eventually, they were able to get redshifts for gamma ray bursts, and they would see that most of them, most gamma ray bursts are indeed very far away. And the people who had, some of them had really good scientific arguments you know, for why they're in our galaxy, they were good arguments, but they just didn't work out this time. So science does progress. There are real measurements, and there are you know, good scientists who will admit that, okay, I made a logical argument, it just didn't turn out to be right. And there's, there's a lot of people out there who've done that, and I think that's great. So I think yeah, science is too. better than it was. Okay, all opinion. right. Awesome. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about APOD now. Um, okay. You're a founding person. Of APOD. It, it's, it's true. Yeah, that, how, how does that start? I mean, you have every uh, astrophotographer's attention right now with this story because, I mean, it's, it's what everybody's after in astrophotography, or at least a lot of people. It's always a topic of conversation. If someone gets one, it, it is something they are very, very proud of forever. So, I mean, how does that begin? Well, uh, one story is that sometimes when I say I'm involved with APOD, people would wonder, you know, why did NASA pick you, right? To, to <laughs> really, <talk>. they say <laughs> that. Yeah. That's a little so, bit douchey. <laughs> that's not you know, what happened. Yeah, like so, well, you're not like the most famous astronomer. You're not the most famous. Why did they pick you? Like, What's going on there? You know, how did you luck into that? Did you have to pay somebody? What happened there? Yeah. Uh, but oh, what happened? Charm- was, charming. You know, Jerry and I invented that when we shared an office back at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center back in 1995. And, and uh, so the internet was brand new. And back in the day, you still had a dial up, I think, didn't you? Well, uh, most using them, did, which is why yeah. we were ahead of the game because NASA, it turns out, had the equivalent of a modern, what's very similar to a modern you know, cable connection. It's something called a T1 line. So That's right. I remember those. Fast. We could bring in images. It was no problem at all. We didn't have to dial and go, do, do, do. We didn't have that. Yeah. It was back in I'm NASA still doing that. 
we were one of the few people who had it. Like most With talks, people had right? it today. It was great. You just go and you click on something and there it was. Yeah. So we had a real advantage, as did most people at NASA Goddard. So what made you want to do it? You just wanted, was it just about educating people, a way to share? I mean, what, what was the driving force there? Um, well, money, I would say. Uh, we thought that the, we started brainstorming ideas as to how we could make a lot of money. We saw the World Wide Web is growing up. And uh, this is just a major opportunity. This is a change in the way humans communicate. And there must be ways to make lots of money on it. So we thought of different ideas, like maybe we could brand sites as being gold and silver, you know, and then we realized that who's going to believe us? We don't have the technology to, to determine how many sites, how many views people are getting on their site. And then we thought, well, maybe we could answer astronomy questions. Then we thought, ah, there's too many astronomy questions. That's too hard. So then we came up with the idea, well, maybe we can do, we're getting sent pictures, right? Uh, usually it's email attachments back in 1995. And, you know, sometimes these people have no clue what that picture is. And wouldn't it be a shame if the, inter if the World Wide Web developed and was a stupid web and that people would just say, I don't know, this looks like some kind of space donut, you know, and we didn't want the web to be stupid. So we decided we wanted the web to be smart. We want when there's a good picture coming out, we want an explanation of it by professional astronomers. And that's one thing that we happen to be. Jerry and I were professional astronomers. So we said, this is one way we can contribute. And maybe we can buy enough to own a Hawaiian island, we were thinking. But we went through, um, but we got involved with the, you know, the NASA. So we asked NASA if it was okay to do this. And they said, well, we don't do, you know, the NASA higher-ups, the administration. No, I have a cat here. If you hear a cat, I have a cat. That's okay. He wants attention sometimes. Um, so she's wondering who I'm talking to. But I Zoom a lot, so she's not crazy with that. So the, the people at the administration of NASA then said, well, the web is really for science and for scientists to exchange data and for things like that. So we're not really going to regulate you guys. So if you want to do this, that's fine. So we started. Boy, that changed. And uh, so, yeah, so that's changed now. So now <laughs> NASA is actually very sophisticated and savvy about its web presence. You know, but back then it was like, no, the administration, we don't want to be bothered with it. I mean, don't, don't bother us with that. We have too much to do already. Uh, so we started publishing. Um, so we discussed this a couple of times. We started wondering if we'd run out of images, you know, uh, how much time this would take. You know, we started thinking about copyright situations, whether we have the ability to do this, you know, legal, ass, legal standing to do this. We said, yeah, there's nothing really stopping us from doing this. And at that time, the, the leader of our research group, uh, he was away building his summer home in the, in, I think it was Colorado at the time, might have been Idaho. And so when he went away, we, we were still doing our gamma reverse research, but then we were left home alone with a great web connection and some really good computers. And so we just started doing this. And on our first day, we had 14 page views according to our log file. And we didn't know why. We didn't know who these people were, you know. And so then we started, we realized pretty quickly that we had something pretty cool, that people were interested in this. And over the years, we realized this isn't really a good way to make money, but it is a good way to communicate science. And it's a good way to get, to make the web smart and not stupid. Because if there's a cool astronomy image that comes along, we can then do what we can to explain this image, as opposed to saying it looks like a giant space donut. 
Um, and that is an important part of APOD is there's two components to it. There's the picture, but there's also the explanation. That's always been a big part of the website. And I love that about it. You know, you guys take the time to explain what, what it is people are looking at. Oh, I was just saying it's fascinating and it does prevent, uh, well, at least I believe it prevents a lot of the space donut conversations, you know, because it's not like you're just seeing this image and just left to come up with an answer for yourself. It's like, well, here's this thing. But then also attached to it is this explanation of what this thing is. So you walk away knowing something about it. And I, I think that's uh, that's what makes it special. Thanks. So, yeah. So over the years, we've you know sort of refined what we did. We've been doing this for 26 years now. Um, so we were way younger then, but many times we consider the image to be the hook. So, um, what do you see a cool image, right? So what is going on there? So if the, the image makes a question in your mind is one of the ways that we might choose it because it, it creates a hook. And then once they look at the image, maybe the human mind looks at it and says, well, what is going on there? Oh, look, there's a short explanation right there. I can read that. Although many more people look at the images than actually read through the explanations, still, it's there for them if they want it. And many of them do read it. And so to our surprise, as, a, as we, we joke internally, we forgot to stop, which is why we're going for 26 years. 26 and, uh, years. We and the images made a lot of money off this. We had yeah. two APOD books a while ago, but, um, but you, we don't. So we just do it now because it's it's still fun and it's cool and it gets, you know, recognition and it brings, there's so many good over those years, so many good astrophotographers grew up. When we started, the, like David Malin was like the best by far astrophotographer, right? I don't know if you know who David Malin is, he's amazing. And he would do great stuff in his dark room, you know, amazing stuff. And so when we could get permission. Film, to Dustin, his, just, just so you know. Yeah, I just said that's film. Uh, Dustin doesn't know about film, so oh, okay, yeah. Just, yeah. But now with um, you know telescopes have become cheaper, digital processing has just exploded, and people can can make images just amazing. We're living in a golden age of of space imagery, and so we didn't know that when we started, but we're real happy to see it develop. And then there's there's other cool stuff for us to to try to explain as best we can. Yeah, you have had the best seat in the house to watch these images evolve over the last 26 years because you were already looking and trying actively trying to find the best images out there, but you're you're watching the top elevate every single year and now, I mean, the images I get sent images on a daily basis and every time, I mean, these images are people doing it in their backyard and it's truly unbelievable the quality that people are doing in their backyard with small telescopes so i can't imagine what you open your inbox to every single day that you're you're going through these because it's just the quality has gone through the roof yeah so sadly we have to reject like maybe 20 to 1 we get sent 20 images and even those are there's so many good images that we can't run so that's one of the reasons why We've opened things like um, Facebook Sky and Instagram universe Instagram account called Universe ViewScreen. So we submit, we post images there many times before they're posted on APOD. Many, but there's many more images posted on these sites. Therefore, we can judge popularity, but popularity is not the only thing we go by. Educational value and historic value are also important. But it's good to see what people consider popular and not. Because another of the things of APOD, if it's a really popular image, 
then that is enough of a hook that we should explain what's going on in that image or video as the case may be. So we we sent so many good images. So we're now able to give more of them some some light, some light of day by posting them to um, to Facebook's uh, Sky account. So you can find that through APOD and and um, Instagram's Universe View Screen account. And uh, so, uh, yeah, there's many more good images there. And some of them are so good, I just feel so bad that we can't feature them on APOD. We just, you know, we can only do one a day and we're sent like 20 good ones a day. So, so I can assure you that every listener we have that's an astrophotographer, uh, astrophotographer is waiting for either myself or Tony to ask this question. So the one that they want to know is, how do they get an APOD? So if what is it exactly that gives them the best chance of getting your attention? Okay. Well, I happened to listen to your last podcast uh, from front to back. So I was sort of anticipating that, <laughs> which is a really good one where three great astrophotographers talk about their images. Um, so um, first of all, so there's no, first of all, don't do, don't, be a great astrophotographer to put your images on APOD, right? APOD is just one outlet. There's lots of good outlets out there. And you shouldn't necessarily be externally validated by, you should be internally validated by saying, you know, I created a great image that I'm proud of. So when you run in the Boston Marathon, you might want to win the Boston Marathon. But if you do better, if you have a personal best for your marathon, that's great. So if you're an astrophotographer and you keep improving your game, then you're doing great. And don't, don't make it your life's goal to appear on APOD because who knows what we might choose, right? That said, so if an image is destined to be a classic, so if let's say you're a textbook publisher, an astronomy textbook publisher, and you want to choose images that go in that textbook, if, if you see an image that is a sure thing for that textbook, then we're more than likely going to highlight it on APOD in the Astronomy Picture of the Day because it's a classic image. It could be because it's, you're, it's the first lander that landed on Titan, right? So almost no matter what that lander saw, we're going with that because that's that would be it's in every textbook, right? But also, if you want to talk about the Andromeda galaxy, do you want an image from 20 years ago? Now, David Malin did have some good pictures, but nowadays it's just amazing. So, but then again, we're sent pictures of the Andromeda galaxy, you know, every week. So we're not going to have the Andromeda galaxy picture of the week. So if we haven't run it for a while, then we might be looking for it for a good one. But it has to be so good that it might be better or show something more scientific than others that we've seen. Uh, so if it's going to be in an astronomy textbook, if it's, it seems like it's destined to be an astronomy textbook, that's one of the things. But there's another one I wanted to use this podcast to, to tell your, your listeners that sometimes we, we've written, and we're not always proud of things we've written, but we're some, proud of some of the texts we've written for some of these. So we will try not to, to show the same object in, this, in, a, in a calendar year. So if we show the Andromeda galaxy today, unless there's some, like there's been a supernova in the Andromeda galaxy, we're probably not going to show it again for a year. But yeah. even more so if you go back a few years. So if you go back a few years and you found an image, you know, that hasn't been featured on APOD for a while, and you can do that better than anyone, then you might catch our attention. Because, yeah, we, we haven't run that for a while. We already have some good text that we won't necessarily just copy. We'll use that for the basis of our new text. 
uh, and that increases the chances. Another thing is that a lot of people go out in their, with their equipment and they take amazing images, but we're also interested in process. You don't even need backyard equipment. You know, all you need really is Hubble images and soon JWST images and images from WISE and things like that, other missions, including um, Chandra. If you can take, uh, and the data is out there, NASA releases their data. If you can become good at taking um, images from Hubble, say, and processing them in to bring out, to make them pop, and to bring out science in, in, in ways that has, hasn't been done before, you've really got our attention. So you don't need a backyard setup. And since we're NASA, we're, of course, we're happy to, to feature NASA. Now, NASA does have some people who are doing this, but the amateurs and their digital processing have progressed so much that many times the digital processors can outdo the people who work at NASA themselves. They're so That's true. Good. You can That's make true. galaxies and nebula pop like nobody can. The, astro the astrophotography community now can now. It's just amazing. But we're happy to get, you know, new images of, uh, of, of things. And, and astrophotographers can go wide and deep at the same time, whereas Hubble only sees a tiny little piece of the sky. But, you know, but if you don't have equipment and you want to get into this, you can watch YouTube videos, you can go to conferences, you can learn how to, to, to make Hubble images, old Hubble images pop. And we're, we're, our, we're eyes are, our eyes are open for that. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I've talked about many times on this podcast how that is a growth area for this hobby. Is just use the images from the world's best observatories and process them yourself. All of it's available. You know, in Hubble data in particular is available in most cases a year after it's been taken. So, so that's available to you. And the image processing stuff. Zolt Levey, the guy that worked with uh, me at the institute, was always amazed at the work that astronomers did. Now, if you don't know who he is, he is he used yes. to be part of the Hubble Heritage Team, uh, and he processed a lot of the most beautiful anniversary images that Hubble ever put out. And he was always struck by the work of amateurs and their processing ability. So I couldn't agree more with that statement. It's a real growth area for the hobby. Yeah. There's a, there's a woman, Judy Schmidt. And, uh, yes, Judy Schmidt. not yep. a professional astronomer. Um, nope. she, Space uh, Gecko, I think, is her handle on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. She excels in digital processing. And uh, she's taken some Hubble images and made them pop and brought things out and uh, it's a combination of arts and sciences that are just amazing. And we're, you know, when she sends something, we, we, we look real closely and say, oh, wow, let's see what's, what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Judy's people awesome. People get reputations for doing good work. Robert Dendler yeah. has also done things like that. He's really good with that. Oh, yeah, I'm he's phenomenal. Many of your audiences. Uh, if you're not in astrophotography, these people just sound like random names, but these people are famous to many astrophotographers. Oh, well, well, and yeah. Rogelio, you, you said you listened yeah. to the last podcast with Rogelio. I mean, he said he's got so many now he's lost track. He said he's got over 70. So I, I guess you see his name popping up quite a bit. But he also yeah. said the same thing you did. Do it for the hobby. Do it because you enjoy it, not because you're trying to get an APOD. He had the same advice. So Right. And there's many, there yeah. are other outlets than APOD. There's Astronomy Magazine. There's Sky and Telescope Magazine. There's lots of uh, Instagram pages. Instagram is very popular. They're a little bit uh, woo-woo, so they, they do things that we wouldn't consider to be cool. They take one picture and they take another picture and they plaster them together and they have nothing to do with each other. And people click, oh, and they're like, oh, no. But no. There, there are also many good 
there are also many good um, Instagram feeds that are. You know, oh, that explains why my M31 image with Alf in it didn't make it. So you see so much right. of that stuff, though. It's like the moon cracked open like an egg with M42 coming out of it. You know, and people are like single exposure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Those are good tips, though. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that people could, you know, you could go back and look at what's been posted recently and know that, you know, if you're if you're going to try to submit those things, your chance goes way down of being selected for APOD because it was just recently posted. It makes perfect sense. But, you know, I, I guess I never thought there might be a strategy to the posting. Well, our frustration is, let's say we we show something, the you know, the Orion Nebula, right? And then... Of course, that caused other people send in Orion Nebula pictures right then. Like, I just saw this. So here's my picture of the Orion Nebula. But we can't run it because we just ran the, the Orion Nebula. Right. Right. Have a supernova that makes sense. Happened. We were not. Uh, but here's the, here's the really frustrating thing for us. Sometimes people submit better images than the one we just ran. You're like, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. didn't know about that one. So, right. When we just put it in the pile and maybe a year or so later, it'll suddenly <laughs> pop out of nowhere like, uh, oh, I had given up on this one. But we put it on our slush pile and uh, sometimes it can come out again after some time has gone by. Do you have a favorite image, one that's just stayed with you through the 26 years? Oh, boy. Um, some. Um, there's one There's called, um, I haven't run it. Uh, we ran it a while ago, actually. We had a, a best of where we reran it. Um, it's about a white dwarf, and uh, it's a Hubble image, and you can see there's these like tendrils going around it. It's cocoon of a new white dwarf, I think its name is. That's one of my favorite ones. And um, it hasn't been run it looks, recently. It, it looks like a pearl, and it's got this cool stuff around it. So it's got, you know, it's got uh, an amazing star in there, and it it has other. It has interesting imagery. It has, you know. Many things going on with it, and it has a good story behind it. So that's one of my, my favorite ones. But it's it was pretty popular when we first ran it, but then when we ran it, it wasn't that popular. And now, I don't know, so it's, we might rerun it again, but we might not. But about another thing you reminded me of, so many people just take pictures. So some people are at the right place at the right time. That's another way to get APOD, an APOD if, uh, or just do cool imaging, yeah. is if you just happen to see a really cool um, I don't know, uh, Nova or, um, you know, or an eclipse. You see an eclipse in a very creative way. You have a, so that, that's a good way of doing it. But some people just take a picture of, you know, the eclipsed sun with part of the moon in front of it. But we get so many of those, right? So you have to come up with something creative. And also, you should think of more image planes as you can. You should have a nearby image plane where you have your local surroundings, maybe. Maybe something interesting. Maybe something that's historic, local structure. And then you might have a cloud plane. You know, that doesn't block off the astronomical stuff behind it or else it wouldn't really be so interesting. And then you have your, you know, your um, your nebula plane and then maybe behind it you have some galaxies. So there is an uh, image that might have four different uh, image planes on it. And uh, so that if you have a lot of image planes, that might help. Another thing that helps with creativity is combining the the regular and the regular, the usual and the unusual. So if you saw an image and it was just something usual, it wouldn't be that interesting. And if you saw an image that was just so crazy you couldn't understand what was going on, 
eh, wouldn't be that interesting. But if you come up with an image that has them both, the juxtaposition of the usual and the unusual at the same time, that's interesting. So, for instance, one of the more most popular images, probably the most popular image of two years ago, it was just the moon. And there was this cloud that went across the moon. And it made the moon look like Saturn seen edge on. And the moon was illuminating the supposed rings of the moon, which doesn't really happen. And it was just such a cool picture to see icons. So first of all, there was a foreground icon, which is good. But then you see the common moon. Everyone knows the moon is an icon. Everyone knows clouds. Everyone knows Saturn. And they all came together in one image. And it was just really cool. So you look at that and you say, what is that? Saturn's not in our sky. So when you see it, there's a, there's a question in your mind. And you're drawn into the picture to find out what's happening. And then you read, well, it's just clouds. But still, it's a really cool juxtaposition. So there you see the familiar and the unfamiliar all together. And so a lot of astrophotographers are very clever in combining those now. And that's what causes people to be interested in images. And then we're interested in describing those images on APOC. Yeah, I, was, I mean, it's fascinating. I haven't seen that image, um, but I have seen images like that where, you know, that juxtaposition you're describing, um, it does make the images interesting and it gives it context and, and it makes it understandable. So I definitely, and I, I enjoy those images myself. You know, it's a little bit, they can be taken too far when people, you know, are just doing composites and things get out of control pretty quickly that way with some images. Um, but you know, it is uh, it is a fascinating way to go about it. But I'm curious, how many people see these images? Like you just said, that was the most popular image of two years ago. It just ballpark. How many people see an APOD image? Well, APOD now has lots of uh, venues. So APOD, as I say, is more of an idea now than a website. It started out just as a website, apod.nasa.gov. So we have we can still see the log files there. And we do better, it actually goes up and down some years, but we do more than a million page views a day. But we also have um, a Facebook account, we have an Instagram account, we have a Twitter following. Way back, we had a Google Plus following. We have, let's see, if we go to About APOD page, it lists, and we have over 20 uh, world, world languages that APOD is translated into daily by volunteers. So APOD has a bit of a volunteer army. People will say, hey, what can I do? Can I help out? And some of these, you know, so they always say, we've started translating APOD into, I don't know, name a language. I'll see if we have that. Um, Farsi? Yes. Yes, we do. So we have uh, um, APOD translated into Farsi. So let me see, where is that? Of course I can't. There it is. It's... Uh, www.skypix.org slash APOD. And that is wow. interesting. I'll be there. So this person doesn't get paid. They volunteer to do it. And that's great. So you know that puts a little pressure on us that you know, we we need to we now have people all over the world who are waiting to get to the APOD to translate it. But I think it's great. It pulls the world together too. So originally, you know, the, the most modest goal of APOD is to have a, a new APOD for tomorrow. That's our modest goal. So when we have one for tomorrow, we're feeling pretty good. But our most ambitious goal is to unify the world. 
because everybody sees the night sky. And we're not the only site that unifies the world. It's, the, it's a theme of the International, International Astronomical Union and lots of things. But still, APOD does play, at this point in time, APOD does play a part because everybody in the world sees the same sky and they can recognize different things and they can share that and they can share stories and images of that sky. And so it's great that APOD is translated into 20 languages because people, you can then share cross cross country, cross cultures and see that humans are humans everywhere. Yes, that's amazing. Do you and uh, do you and Jerry still uh, pick all the images? Uh, yes. Yeah, so you so, see. Um, there's interesting stories about everything. So we can go on and stop me after <laughs> 10 hours after uh, you've heard too much. So Jerry and I, uh, we didn't know each other at first. You know, we were, we were put in an office because so, we were both working on gamma ray bursts. And then we just became friends. Uh, we did become friends before APOD was, was founded. So we're still friends, although I've moved to Michigan Technological University, which I should have mentioned earlier. Um, so my university. Well, I'm going to give you a, a, an intro. So don't worry. I'll yeah. mention it there. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so uh, we we exchange email. We we do our APODs separately. So I do mine, usually the beginnings of the week. He does his, usually the end of the week. Um, and we rarely do one together. Um, so, but we know each other after 26 years well enough to know, you know, pretty much what the other person is thinking. And we do exchange email sometimes. And this year, Jerry won the penny competition where you, um, the first, so the year is 2021 for people hearing this, you know, 50 years in the future. And so the first oh. penny, U.S. penny that someone finds that has that year on it, I'm going to hold it up to the, to the, um, let's see, I can hold up to my thing, to, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but, um, so the first person you see who gets a penny from that year mails it to the other person. So Jerry keeps winning that, but it was close this year. <laughs> and, uh, That's a great story. So... <laughs> You know, so we still, we talk on the phone maybe once every other month or so. And uh, we, you know, find out what's going on with each other's kids. But, uh, but yeah, we choose the images. Now, NASA, at first, before saying that, you know, none of that, we were actually now funded, fully funded by NASA. Here's a quiz question. What year was our first year of full funding by NASA? And the oh, answer God. to that was 2018. <laughs> that sounds like NASA. <laughs> it took a long time for them to really believe in what we're doing. Is right? this really, but you know, is this? <laughs> no, is, I don't know if we should invest yet. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> they have been generally helpful though. But they you know, finally in 2018 we were fully funded. But now they're asking us. You know, we're getting older. I'm 60. Jerry does not want his age disclosed, but it could be in that that region. Um, and so they're asking us to come up with a succession plan. Nah. So we've okay. been thinking about that, and we don't have anything concrete. But, you know, if it could happen faster. You know, if I get hit by a bus or if that, uh, that Apollo uh, asteroid turns out to be more dangerous than people are thinking, then it could, uh, it could come earlier than, than that. The, the Apophis one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, congratulations, Robert. I mean, you two had definitely. this idea 26 years ago, and you have built an incredibly valuable and powerful educational tool. Science education. I mean, this is this is science communication on an epic level when you're talking about a million people a day at minimum. And that's just the website. 
you know, not not all the other channels through social media and everything else. And I've seen those too, and those those have exploded as well. So I think it's extremely important work. And even if you didn't set out to build this giant in the beginning, you have. And I think it's extremely important. So congratulations on the success. Yeah, and I, I, I second that. And just, Thank you. Yeah, the and to say that you've made you've made an impact would be an understatement. I just want to point, I what I, I wanted to bring this up at the very end because uh, it it really was you know life changing. I've told the story many times on the podcast, but the a pod of September first, two thousand two. I'm looking at it now, and by the way, kudos <laughs> for keeping the web point one point look uh, throughout all those twenty six years. Yes, the website still looks the same. In a, we've been we've been <laughs> it, talking with NASA about that, so we're still holding out, but I don't know how much longer we can hold out. With don't that. change it. It's perfect the way it yeah. is. It's just definitely definitely uh, nostalgic the way you have it set up. But you, uh, I don't know if you or Jerry wrote this, but it, the the caption was what got me. It's just the Hubble Deep Field. The one taken uh, in Ursa Major, and Wait, tell, tell, it's, me, tell me the date again. I want to bring it up. It's one first of September, two thousand two. September two thousand two, first September, Hubble Deep yeah. Field. Um, I was in college when I saw yes, this. Okay. And, uh, I read the, I read the, you know, I look at the picture, it's no big deal. It's just a bunch of blobs, right? It's not a particularly attractive image, but this is the image that when I read your, uh, or, or Jerry's, uh, caption absolutely blew my mind. It was the, it was the part where astronomers selected an uncluttered area of the sky. Uh, and, uh, you pointed the Hubble space telescope at a single spot for 10 days and accumulating and combining many separate exposures. Well, when I clicked on that selected an uncluttered area of the sky link, um, it took me to the Institute where I learned about how that image was taken and it led me on a search and a discovery that this was a very controversial image by astronomers that a lot of people thought it was a waste of Hubble's time. But when I looked at what I was, when I understood the context of the frame of those blobs, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was one of those things where it was like, this is what you see when you point a telescope, the most powerful one ever built up to that point, at absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And it fills every blob in there is a galaxy. And I was forever changed by this image and your presentation of it pointed me on a journey that, uh, I've never, I've just not been the same since I've been, well, I've gotten crazier, but I've also, you know, got, got me into science communication and making videos. And I just want to say that the work that you two have done and NASA by extension, uh, and the service that you're providing is, I think one of the most important in the field. So thank you for the work that you do as well. Um, okay, so I don't actually remember who wrote that one. So sometimes you can tell. Uh, well, I'd be shocked at me. This was two thousand. But I think, but I think either of us would have featured the Hubble Deep Field if the other one hadn't done it first. Well, really you've done it several times amazing. since, but but yeah. that that one just caught my. It was one of those days. I, I had a routine back in the day. I was I'm a software engineer, and I was in college at the time. I read Dilbert. I went through my little yes. my little checklist of all the websites I would go see. During work hours, of course, and one of them was to see APOD. Right, what's up at APOD that day? And uh, and just and that was part of my routine for for many many years. So cool. that's how I found it. Yeah. Um, okay. So Robert Nemiroff, thank you all. Thank you so much for for joining us on our podcast. I would like to have you come back if you've ever got time. Maybe when your book comes out, you'll sure. you'll I'd maybe join to... us again. And... 
and we'll talk some more about your book. Uh, he is he's the author of a new book coming out. When is it? Do you have a, do you have a date, by the way? When no, it might I don't have a date. But there are okay. further adventures of Jerry and Bob that I can tell you that I didn't get into now. So if I come well, back then. in maybe a year or so, I might be able to fill you in on some of our, of our other adventures beyond APOC. Oh, now you have to. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. A year, though. we got to wait a year. Okay, folks. Just be patient. He's the <laughs> author of an upcoming book, Faster Than Light, Why I'll, uh, Faster Than Light, Why Your Shadows Can Do It, But You Can't. And we will uh, keep you posted on when it does get published. I'll be putting it uh, on my watch list as well to, to check when it comes out. Thank you so much, Robert, uh, okay. for spending time with us. Uh, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. You've been listening and watching the Space Junk Podcast. Thank you for doing that, by the way. And feel free to subscribe on all of your RSS readers because you need to. You need to be having this in your inbox. And thank you all again so much for listening. As, as And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.